Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 1, says this, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. So Jesus was traveling with his disciples, and the crowds had begun to gather by this point in Mark. And they're beginning to travel along with him. They're beginning to follow him because Jesus was proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom that he had come to establish, that he had come to announce, and he was verifying that kingdom. Here's the key piece. Here's a lot of why they were following him. He was verifying the coming of that kingdom with what the gospel writers call signs and wonders. So here he is going to what Mark tells us is the other side of the sea from Galilee, his home turf, to mostly Gentile, non-Jewish territory. He's crossing over from the relative safety of his hometown, his turf, people know the deal, to uh, foreign sort of socio-political territory to what's called here the other side. And the verbiage that Mark uses here in verse 1 means that the crowds that had been gathering were likely following him along in his journey. Uh, you, you see the small boats that they traveled in uh, would probably often roughly follow the shoreline uh, so they would avoid the, the, the big storms that often happen in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Plus, you could also see all the way across, even today, from one side to the next, at all points around the Sea of Galilee. So people could literally watch the boat Jesus was in as it traveled sort of across down the shoreline to the other side. Occasionally, the crowds even would beat him there, uh, being ready for him when he arrived. So Jesus is in foreign territory, and the crowds are hyped to see what he would do. <laughs> and in this account, Jesus does not disappoint. Look at verse 2. When Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, which is something Mark tells us three times, We'll give some color to that as we go along. The tombs are considered by the Jews ritually unclean. It's where the demons live. Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, which is a way for Mark to say demon-possessed. This is a Jewish way of saying not only that he was demon-possessed, but that he cannot, this, this man who is unclean, who is demon-possessed, he cannot be in relationship with God. He's ritually unclean. This is a way of saying he cannot participate in meaningful relationship with God in ways we take for granted because he was considered defiled, uh, ceremonially unclean, because he couldn't participate in the temple rituals and sacrifices, the kinds of things that would make him clean. He was cast out. So right from the get-go here, Mark tells us this man is in bad shape. He is a ritually unclean man possessed by demons in a ritually unclean place where the dead people live. And in case you didn't catch that, look at verse 3. Mark tells us again, he lived among the tombs. Mark repeats it like, don't miss this. This dude's in trouble. He's living where dead people live. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. This is how bad it was, Mark says. Not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, which is something that they used to do to keep people from harming themselves and harming others. Uh, today we have pills, then they use chains. That's just the, the difference today, frankly. I've taken those pills, relax, y'all. <laughs> then they use chains, now we have Adderall. <laughs> That is not in Mark. Verse 4. 
No one could bind him anymore, not even with the chains, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one, no person, track that, no person around him had the strength to subdue him. This is a picture of the sheer strength and power of these demons inside this man. Mark completes this picture with this poor man's torment. He says this in verse five, night and day, third time he says it, among the tombs. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself uh, with stones. The picture Mark is trying to paint here is that this man was beyond human help. Beyond human help. Other forces were at work taking this man on a trajectory that we'll see in clearer terms here soon. But to summarize so far, I'm going to quote something that I came across in the ESV Study Bible, which is great. We have it available to purchase in the hub. I use it every day. The, the, the study notes are great in the ESV Study Bible. It says this about verse 5. The goal of demons is to destroy the person created in the image of God. The goal of demons is to destroy the person created in the image of God. Jesus himself says in John 10.10, 10, the main reason the, the thief has come, the evil one, has come only to steal and kill and destroy this physical picture that Mark paints here of this poor man being constantly tortured, tormented by these demons, is meant to communicate. It's meant to communicate that though physically alive, he is by all accounts actually dead. Meaning he is beyond human help. And his needs, if you're tracking, are spiritual. He is possessed by demons, living among the dead, unable to be kept from hurting himself. Mark has described here basically an animal more than a human being, which is to say, track with me, this is what happens when the evil one gains control. I'm sure glad I've never been demon-possessed. This is what happens when the evil one gains control. You may not have been to this point, but you're at and have experienced some points along that direction and trajectory, right? So this is what happens when the evil one gains control. This is who we are without Jesus. This is the picture Mark is painting here. This is who we are without Jesus. <laughs> but the scene changes when this poor man sees Jesus. Look at verse six. He saw Jesus from afar coming on the boat. He's part of the crowd. He's anticipating something happening. He, he knows that Jesus has the power. So it says he ran and fell down before him. And crying out, verse 7, with a loud voice, he said, demon speaking at this point, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? There are about 30 places in the New Testament, there are about 30 places in the New Testament where we see this idea that Jesus alone has power over the spiritual powers, over the dark powers of this world. And this is one of them. And what's cool about this one is it explicitly names Jesus, these demons in this man, explicitly name Jesus as the Son of God. They recognize his supreme power. And they say, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, I beg you, in the name of God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Don't torment us before our time. There are a couple of other places they refer to that that don't really matter for us, so let's move on. For he was saying to him, verse 8, Jesus was already saying to them, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So they're begging. 
Don't torment us. Because Jesus had been saying, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And then look at this, verse 9. He sort of carries on this conversation with him. Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. In every other place in Scripture where Jesus uh, is calling out demons, where there's an exorcism, it's basically just say, uh, Jesus saying, be quiet, and it happens. Come out, and it happens. This is the only place in Scripture where we get an extended uh, sort of look into what goes on here. And Jesus is sort of functionally, frankly, having a conversation here with this man, with these demons. And he says, what is your name? He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Implication being that he is possessed by many demons. We don't know how many, of course. Could be thousands. The word legion is a Roman military term. Uh, there's a unit in the Roman military where there are up to 6,000 soldiers called a legion. So the picture here is that Jesus is talking with this man who has perhaps thousands of demons, and he's telling the demons to come out. And it's like they know something is coming that they don't want to make happen, their eventual destruction. And so they basically say, at least let us stay alive somewhere else. They begged him earnestly, verse 10, not to send them out of the country. They're sort of begging Jesus just to let them stay alive, which when you think about it, is like asking Jesus to let you continue to torment people to the point of death. Notice what Jesus does, verse 11. Instead of that inevitable thing, this is what happens instead. Verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him, the demons begged Jesus, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. <laughs> Press pause real quick. Uh, according to the rationale of the demons, which I understand is a weird thing to say, but I think that's sort of the sense of what's going on here in verse 12. According to the rationale of the demons, they're thinking since Pigs are considered unclean. These are spiritual beings who know how these things work. Since pigs are considered unclean and we are in unclean spirits, send us, Lord, into the pigs instead so that we can continue to do our work of evil. So they're pleading with Jesus, don't kill us. Send us into the pigs to torment something else. Um, and he says this verse, uh, Mark tells us this, verse 13. He gave them permission. Jesus gave them <laughs> permission and so the unclean spirits come out into the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000, which might have been all of the pigs for that village, look at what happens next, verse 13, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. Now we read this scene, and admittedly it sounds a little weird to more, uh, to, to more modern sensibilities, right? We read this and we think, okay, so wait. That many pigs, 200 pigs, might have been all the pigs for that entire village. It was probably multiple owners. That's what the text seems to connote later on. And, and might have been a lifetime of work for those people. We see this scene and we go, why would Jesus allow this? Three things. <laughs> Number one, the demons don't make the Pigs go into the sea, ultimately. Verse 13 merely says Jesus gave them permission. Secondly, don't make the mistake of measuring material possessions higher than the value of the liberation and restoration of a man who had been unloved, un uncared for, and cut off from relationship with God. Our modern sensibilities and value systems, uh, perverted as they are, we often ask questions about the material worth of something instead of the eternal value of someone's soul. 
That's how messed up we really are. <laughs> a whole bunch of you are like, oh, I, I wasn't asking that of the text. I didn't care about that. Thirdly, even if Jesus had allowed the demons to kill 200 pigs and the owners were upset, which the text later on tells us they were, the ultimate lesson is worth them learning. <laughs> which is to say in the words of Jesus later on in Mark, what does it profit a man to gain 200 pigs and forfeit their souls? In the larger scheme of what's going on, Jesus is teaching a lesson. Your pigs, though they may be valuable to you in the here and now, are nothing compared to the eternal value of your relationship with God. So there's a lesson here in this for us. <laughs> Let's keep moving. The demons drive the pigs into the sea, which is a picture of what happens with the evil ones in charge. And look at how the people respond. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled, and they told it in the city, the nearby city, and in the country, the larger region. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, they saw the demon possessed, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. They came to see Jesus, saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, because they knew who he was, they know who he is, and they were afraid, because that's a normal response when the power of Almighty God does his work, and you go, what in the world is that? That was their response. They were afraid. So they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Verse 17. And then notice this, verse 18. This is the crux for us today. Notice how the demon-possessed man responds to all this. And then notice what Jesus says in response to him. Verse 18. This is the crux. As he was getting into the boat, as Jesus was leaving, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. The man wants to stay with Jesus, to follow his ministry, to continue that mission, to go with him, to travel, and to be with Jesus. He wants to go be a missionary with Jesus. The man wants to go be a missionary with Jesus because he thinks, man, unreal. This is amazing. I want to be a part of this. Let's go, let, let, let's go on a short-term mission trip. Look at what Jesus says, verse 19. He did not permit him, but he said to him, key verse today, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So what did he do? Verse 20, he went away. He was faithful. He did what Jesus says. He began to proclaim in the Decapolis, the 10 cities in that region, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Everyone was amazed. Now, think about this for just a second here. Everyone marveled at this testimony of this man. On the one hand, duh, of course they did. He had been demon-possessed. He was hurting himself and uh, probably had been hurting others. And now he's not. Obviously, something supernatural. Uh, Jesus has made a miracle happen, and this man is different. Of course, that's an amazing testimony. Everyone marveled at this testimony. Why? Not just because of that on the face of it, but because they knew full well in personal relationship with him who he had been. They knew this man's backstory. They could see how far he'd come. His life itself that was changed was the witness to them. 
Now, while your story, on the face of it, may not mirror this man's story, if you understand the gospel correctly, your story should parallel his. While your story may not mirror this man's story, if you understand your own story and the gospel correctly, your story should parallel his. Because whatever the details, the most powerful witness you have is the witness to those who know who you've been, who know who you are, and they can see how far you've come because of Jesus. This is why Jesus sends this man home and why ultimately he is sending us home to those we know and those who know us. You see, friends, <laughs> if your witness is merely to some sort of benign, half-truth gospel that Jesus has saved you from not being as bad as maybe you could have been, as opposed to something where he saves you from being driven over the cliff into the sea, which is the accurate picture of our lives, then you're not seeing yourself nor the gospel accurately. Let me say that again because it's super important here. If you're a witness to the truth of the gospel, it's merely some sort of benign half-truth thing that Jesus has saved you from being not as bad as you could have been. And it's not a witness to the truth that were it not for him, you, like this man, would absolutely be driven over the cliff into the sea. Then you're not seeing yourself nor the gospel clearly. The lesson for us today is frankly easy to understand, hard to apply. The lesson is to understand your story in terms that parallel this man whose life was headed for the cliffs and learn to weave that version of your story into your call to be a missionary to the people in your own community. Friends, Jesus has called us all, all of us who call him Lord and Savior. He calls us all to be missionaries to our own people, to our own community, to our own family, our own workplaces, our own marriages, our own neighbors. He's called us to be missionaries to our own people. And friend, you are called to do the <laughs> everyday, boring, faithful thing of being a witness to those with whom you already share life and who already know you and your brokenness and where you've come and where your life was headed. This matters for us. This matters because, frankly, in this country especially, it seems, but in, but in any country where we have this deception of, uh, of being in control because we have uh, means at our disposal, we have technology in our pockets, uh, this matters because we are in a major, major shortage of missionaries willing to carry the gospel to those closest to them. Frankly, everybody around us in this country seems to want the relative ease of being a disciple who consumes, but not the productive life Jesus calls us to, of being a disciple who actually produces. There's not even actually a category for disciple who consumes in the New Testament. There's only a definition of a disciple who follows Jesus on a cross that he dies on, on which you die daily. 
Everybody sort of wants the, the wonderful idea of resurrection without cross. You cannot see and experience and know Jesus with an intimacy that knows Jesus if you haven't followed him on your own cross where you die and you take on his mission. Everybody sort of wants the relative ease of disciple who consumes but not a disciple who produces. Listen, everybody wants farm to table and organic but precious few are willing to farm, right? <laughs> oh, I love myself some of that kale. Where'd it come from? Oh, I don't know, this bag. That's not far off. That's not far off of how we, how we treat the treasure and precious truth of the gospel that we have, that we have because others sacrificed for us. We have because others were missionaries to us. We have because our mothers and fathers and grandfathers and, and grandmothers and our aunts and uncles and our brothers and our cousins and people around us, people we work with, were models of Jesus to us. But I don't want that mission. I just went to the grocery store and get my kale chips. So, so instead, of, instead of having this participation in the kingdom, participation in the body that is more akin to going to the grocery store and picking up kale chips, get your hands dirty in the kingdom work of dedicating yourself to becoming a producer, a disciple maker, a missionary to those around you, to people who know your story. <laughs> because your best opportunity is to witness to those with whom you already have shared experience. It's easier to be a missionary on a trip for a week than it is tomorrow to be a witness to those you have relationship with. We all want to stay at church camp when it's time to go to work on Monday and be in it to win it for the kingdom tomorrow. Be a missionary, friends, who goes to your own people. Can you imagine what that would look like if... 25% of the 575-ish people who will be in our four services today, if 25% <laughs> took on this mission in earnest tomorrow, God would do amazing things among us to make himself known, to reveal himself to us, to establish among us a kingdom that people look like and go, wow, wow. You were that shackled in chains person, weren't you? Man, that's good stuff. That's how this works. It's not rocket science. It's just courage. It's not rocket science. It's just courage. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray for the strength and courage to do the hard work of looking inside ourselves and recognizing all those various places where you have uh, kept us from going off the cliff. We pray, Lord, for um, a greater understanding of ourselves and of the truth of the gospel um, so that we would be missionaries to those around us, um, so that we would be sent ones, messengers of the good news that you've saved us from the pits we've dug ourselves. Father, we love you for this amazing truth. 
that in your son Jesus, you have been for us salvation we couldn't earn, that you have been for us provision we could never provide for ourselves. So Father, give us through your work in us, through your work in the cross, a greater understanding of how you've called us to be missionaries to our community, uh, to those closest to us. Uh, give us the strength and the courage to tell the story in ways that, uh, <laughs> that stay true to what you've done for us. This, that this wouldn't be some story of self-righteousness where you've kept us from being as bad as we could be, but it's a story that keeps the gospel true that you that you have kept us from going over the cliff when we were inevitably headed for it. And Father, for those of us who are headed over the cliff now, we ask that you would speak to hearts, that you would reshape them, that you would give the assurance, Lord, uh, that in Jesus you have made a provision for what they couldn't for themselves. We ask this in his name. Amen.